Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you'll open your Bibles to Psalm 126, this is, of course, the psalm that we just sang earlier in our service. This is, I believe, a unique moment in the history of our church, the first time that we've sung the psalm that was then preached on. And it's an interesting psalm. It's it's a song that has been kind of a, a source of merriment to us as a community in the past, because uh, <laughs> if you recall uh, Jeremy Muller, I've, I've shared the story before, uh, always thought it was very strange that when we sang the words, we are glad, we sounded so not glad about it, almost mournful in singing those words. In fact, although the Mullers moved to San Antonio, they sent us not too long ago a video of the whole family singing this psalm in an exaggeratedly mournful way. But as we reflect on Psalm 126, there's a reason why when we sing it, there is this mixture of emotion. And we're going to be examining that that, uh, apparent conflict of tone in the song this morning as we seek to understand what Psalm 126 is all about. So hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's not unusual if you've spent enough time in church to take issue with some of the songs that we sing in church. We all have unique relationships and experiences to different music. There are songs that you end up loving, and there are songs that that you don't, songs that don't connect with you. And I have one of those songs in mind. It's uh, one that will be familiar to anyone who grew up in Sunday school around the time that I did. And it goes, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And then you're meant to clap your hands. I never loved that song. In fact, I never liked that song. In fact, I, I kind of disliked and even hated that song as a little kid because I was an obstinate little kid. And in some ways, I remain obstinate. I didn't like to be told what to do. I didn't want to sing a song that made me clap my hands and made me strut around and made me yell amen and things like that. Uh, Part of it was hand gestures. I didn't like doing the hand gestures, having to remember all the different things. I was never too coordinated, so I always felt like I was embarrassing myself. So I sympathize with young people in church when they're singing in front of the congregation and they don't want to do the, the gestures. But of course, now as an adult, I see how, how sweet and wonderful it is to watch them do the gestures. And so I've made peace with it. But there's a deeper problem 
at least for me, which was I always felt like I was being told not only what to do, but how to feel. That, that my emotions were being kind of manipulated. I didn't want to be told what to do, but I definitely didn't want to be told what to feel. And I think a lot of times in worship, you see this where, where sometimes the, the, the worship encourages us to feel what we don't feel. And, and sometimes we go to great lengths to manufacture the feelings, which is sentimentalism. Sentimentalism in worship is the worst kind of lie because it insists on laughter and joy and gladness without any room for tears, without any room for mourning, for weeping. I think in Psalm 26, we find the antidote to that kind of sentimentalism because this psalm doesn't tell you how to feel. It has room for both the joy and the mourning. There's joy, but there's also sorrow. What the psalm does is not tell us how to feel, but it shows us how our feelings fit. How our feelings fit not only in the plan of God, but also in the way of the world. If you look at the text, you see that it's divided into two parts. In your order of worship, you don't have the verse numbers, but the first part is verses 1, 2, and 3. The second part is verses 4, 5, and 6. Makes it really simple. So two parts, and in each part, there is a restoration that is in view. One restoration, the first one, is in the past, and the other restoration, the second one, is in the future. So in verses 1 and 3, you've got a remembrance of past restoration, and then in verses 4, 5, and 6, you have a prayer for future restoration. When the Lord restored our fortunes, or the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream, remembering what it was like, looking back in time to a past restoration. What restoration, though, is the psalm pointing to? If you think about the history of Israel, there are actually several possibilities here. The psalm doesn't spell it out, but there are several different restorations that could be in mind. For example, one possibility would be the deliverance from Egyptian captivity into the promised land, the Exodus. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and Joshua leads them into the promised land. That was a restoration of fortunes, and the people who had been in bondage now possessed a land of their own. That act is a prototype of all salvation in Scripture. Egyptian bondage is a a metaphor, a type for our bondage to sin. Also, that exodus gave the nations something to talk about. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 4, that great story of, of the the seizure by the Philistines of the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant's ultimate restoration, you find out that when the Ark of the Covenant arrived on the battlefield, the Philistines were afraid because they had heard of the great things that God had done for his people. So a reputation was formed. The Lord has done great things for them, the Philistines say. So that's one possibility that they have in mind 
the Exodus. But there's another possibility as well. It could be the Babylonian captivity that they have in mind. Years later, after the kingdom uh, collapsed, it divided and then eventually invaded both in the north and the south, the people of Judah were carried off to Babylon. But then, of course, after 70 years, they were restored to the land. It was an echo of that earlier exodus. And the interesting thing is, the way that they came back actually fits the pattern of this psalm really well because they came back in waves. So there were people who were back in the land who had experienced the restoration of Israel, of Zion, that God has accomplished. But at the same time, those people were longing for something still to come. They were longing for God to bring everybody back, for God to restore the glory that had been lost. So that past restoration actually fits very well, and it would explain the the weeping that is going on as the people long for a further restoration of their fortunes. In verses 4, 5, and 6, as we pray, restore our fortunes, O Lord, the question is what future restoration does the psalm have in mind? It could be, as I said, that restoration of the rest of the captives, that God would complete the work he had begun. And if that is, in fact, what the psalmist has in mind, that's a work that was not completed in the New Testament. People were still longing for that, still praying that God would restore the fortunes of Israel. They were praying for the restoration of what had been lost, the kingdom. They were praying for the restoration of what we've been talking about in our series on the Psalms, the Messianic kingdom. In fact, it's no surprise that in Acts chapter 1, this is the very question that is posed to Jesus by his disciples. Once they've witnessed the resurrection, they ask this question in Acts 1 verse 6. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? Still longing for a future restoration. Still longing, still praying to God, restore our fortunes. Speaking of fortunes, I want to pause and give you some investment advice. If you study investing, one of the things investors are quick to remind you is that past performance is no guarantee of future results. Just because something has done well in the past is not a guarantee that in the future it will still come through for you. That is good financial advice. But as covenant counsel, it falls hopelessly short. Because in fact, the logic of God's covenant runs the other direction. God's past faithfulness, his past restorations are an absolute guarantee of future restoration, of future results. The reason why God is a God of history, who in scripture shows us again and again, the way that he built back up what sin had torn down, is that he wants us to have confidence in the future that he has promised. There's a value to this history, a value to knowing this history, to knowing God's goodness in the past because God's past goodness has shaped us, his people, into dreamers 
We've become dreamers because of this. Saying, trust God for the future because God was faithful in the past may sound to you like a platitude or worse, a manipulation. Am I telling you how to feel? No, I'm not. But I am pointing to something that you can believe in. It's this. God's goodness over time does this crazy work within us, this inescapable work. It turns cynics like me into dreamers. I wake up every morning knowing that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, knowing that things are only going to get worse. I know that 10 years from now, if I'm still alive, which I doubt, I will look back on the year 2020 with nostalgia because things will be so bad then that we will long for the good old days. And yet, I read a little scripture, I reflect, I remember God's mighty deeds, and suddenly I'm transformed. Suddenly I become a dreamer. Suddenly I start thinking anything might happen, that all this good might be uh, made to flourish in the midst of evil. And that's because in large ways and in small ones, I have experienced God's restoration. And so have you. And that experience was given to you as a gift, the experience of restoration. The psalmist says, we were like those who dream. We're like those who dream. A phrase that captures a sense of astonishment. We still talk this way when something really good happens because you don't expect it, because you don't go through life thinking that that everything's going to work out. When it does, when some windfall, some blessing occurs, you say to yourself, is this real? Am I dreaming? That's what it means. We were like those who dream. How could this be happening? How could something so good be taking place? But of course, in Scripture, dreams function in interesting ways. To be a dreamer in Scripture is not just to be someone who is uh, awestruck. It's also to be someone who has been given vision. God reveals himself to the prophets in dreams. Those who dream are often given glimpses of future fulfillment. So to say we were like those who dream, it's not just to say we were astonished. It's also to say we were like those given a glimpse of things to come. We were like those who were not just asking themselves, am I dreaming, but, but am I living in the day of fulfillment? Am I living in the end times? Which when people say things like that, usually they're talking about bad stuff. But from a Christian standpoint, in times, that's fulfillment. That's God keeping his promises. That's justice being done. That's a good time to be present. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Interestingly, that's the kind of joy that doesn't have to be coached. It doesn't have to be cajoled. The kind of joy that this psalm is talking about, no pastor dreamed up a way of getting people to feel this way. They, they feel it because of what's taking place all around them, what they're experiencing. It's a response to a real experience. 
I talked last week about 1945, the defeat of the Nazis. When you think about the celebrations that broke out in the streets on VE Day, it's like that. People were astonished. They were in awe and they were laughing and they were celebrating. It's like uh, 1980 when even a guy like me who doesn't care anything at all about sports was suddenly a hockey fan because the American hockey team, the underdogs, defeated the Soviets. And it seemed like, wow, anything is possible. The way we felt when the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. like The world that had been divided in two and seemed as if it would always be that way suddenly could be one again. And it was astonishing. We laughed with joy. We felt euphoric. And no one had to manipulate us. There was no uh, technique involved. It was real because of the joy, the, the freedom that God had brought about. Because of the great things he had done. It's interesting to see the way the psalmist talks about the great things God has done for us. It doesn't start with, with our reaction and like what we say. Like we have the experience, we have the joy, but, but then he switches over to what the nations say, what the Goyim, the Gentiles say. They say the Lord has done great things for them. The Philistines say the Lord has done great things for them because God, by doing these great things, has glorified himself. And then we acknowledge their testimony. Yes, he has, and we are glad. Before a fortune can be restored, it has to be lost. Think about what you've lost. You reflect on what has been taken from you. Oftentimes, these are things we cling to, the objects, the grievances, whatever, that symbolize what we've lost, what we're afraid of of losing touch with, the things we're holding on to, even though they're gone. Something can happen even to a faithful Christian when we get stuck on the idea of what is lost. We can't think about restoration because it's just eating us up to think about what we are in danger of losing. Lost innocence, lost prestige, lost respect, whatever. God says, let that go. When you let that go, Christ pulls you deeper into faith and you realize that instead of holding on to what is gone, you can look to God to restore all things. God's goodness in the past makes us dreamers who believe in the restoration of what was lost. We dream that through our struggles and our grieving, Jesus will bring a harvest of joy. Restore our fortunes, O Yahweh. We know that you can do it because you've done it before. We know that you can do it because the nations bear witness to what you've done. Like streams in the Negev, the psalmist says. In other words, uh, streams, these wadis in the desert, they're not supplied by the ocean. They're supplied by rain. They are dry and parched, but then suddenly rain comes. And the rain fills them. They're filled from above, suddenly. And that's the metaphor. Restore our fortunes the way the rain restores the streams in the desert. And then at the end of the psalm, we have this metaphor of sowing and reaping. The emotions of sorrow and joy are mapped onto this idea of planting and harvest. 
our weeping, our mourning, our pain often seems pointless to us, meaningless. The, the reality of pain is one of the greatest arguments against the love of God, even the existence of God, at least in the philosopher's mind. But when you think about it in these terms, you realize planting is not pointless. Planting is not meaningless any more than rain is. The time of sowing may not be fruitful, but it anticipates a time of fruitfulness. Harvest. In the same way, the sorrow, the weeping of this season, it isn't good in itself. But the work that we do in sorrow will bring a harvest of joy. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the word harvest to refer to the souls who are being brought into his kingdom. In Matthew 13, in the parable of the weeds, Jesus uses the word harvest specifically to refer to, he says, the end of the age, the time of harvest that is coming. James and Paul both speak of a harvest of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Again, the idea of planting and harvesting and God will give you all things generously so that you can be generous yourself. A harvest of righteousness seen here is generosity. James in James 3, verses 14 through 18, sees a harvest of righteousness manifested in peacemaking. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. By those who make peace. It's hard. Being an ambassador of Christ is hard. It's often tearful work. Sometimes you plant seed and it seems like it's all being swallowed up, thrown away. Generosity is hard because people are ungrateful or they don't pay it forward. Or it seems like you've given more than your fair share and it's never enough. Peacemaking is hard because there's always more glory in fighting than there is in making peace because it feels better to knock people down than it does to help them up. But there is a harvest to bring in and God will enrich you, as Paul says, in every way, to be generous in every way. And if there's ever going to be a harvest of righteousness first, there must be sowing of peace by those who make peace. When you hear those words, I hope a name comes to mind. As so often in the Psalms and elsewhere in scripture, when you 
compile a list of virtues, things we should aspire to, things we must do. The, the longer that list gets, the more impossible it seems to accomplish it. It doesn't just seem hard. It seems insurmountable. And when you feel that way, when you feel like this cannot be done, that, that too much is being asked, that the harvest is too great, that generosity is demanding too much, that peace can never be made. Don't feel despair. Instead, think Jesus. Think Jesus. Because what we cannot accomplish, Jesus already has. Restore our fortunes, O Yahweh, the people of God pray. Covenant Lord, restore us. And that prayer does not fall on deaf ears. We get more than just rain in the desert. God sends us his son, Jesus Christ. He sends Christ to restore the kingdom. Not just some limited, corrupt, physical kingdom, but the spiritual kingdom that that fulfills all God's promises, the kingdom within which we as human beings can be all that we were made to be when all the desires that we have been given can be fulfilled. And yet Jesus didn't come straight down from heaven wearing a crown with an army of angels. When he came that first time, he came in humility. He came to suffer. Did Jesus feel that his pain, that his suffering was pointless, that it was meaningless, that it had no purpose? No. Jesus sowed with tears. Jesus endured humiliation and suffering, but it wasn't pointless. What Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry was he was sowing with an eye to the harvest. He suffered in hope because he knew that he'd be coming home, carrying his sheaves with him. And that is the pattern for our lives as well. And that is our reason for hope. As God has restored us in the past, he will restore us again in Jesus Christ. Yes, we are going out weeping. We are going out broken. We are going out weak. We are going out in tears. But we will, by God's grace, come home with shouts of joy. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.